Hey friends, welcome back to the No Wrong Turns podcast with Audrey Lee Hickman Hunter. I am Audrey and I'm your host. I'm so happy that you guys are here. If you're listening today, please make sure that you guys subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Every other Tuesday, we have an awesome guest come on the show and chat with us. The No Wrong Turns podcast talks about their story, their passions, and it aims to see how their passions have evolved and grown throughout their story. Subscribe today to the No Wrong Turns podcast with Audrey Hickman Hunter on your podcast app, player, or wherever you're listening to this, so you guys will never miss an episode. Hey friends, welcome back to the No Wrong Turns podcast with Audrey Hickman Hunter. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Audrey. The No Wrong Turns podcast talks to people about their story and their passions. It aims to see how their passions have evolved and grown throughout their story. Hey friends, happy Tuesday. Listeners, welcome to our 21st episode. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Karen Harula. Karen is our second doctor on the podcast. Dr. Isabel Olson was our first doctor on the pod back in episode nine. I know that I must have met Karen sometime back when my family and I started going to the Salvation Army when I was in middle school. And if memory serves me correctly, I believe Karen was also my high school Sunday school teacher, along with Chris Shea, who was a guest from our second episode, all the way back to episode number two. In this episode, Karen will be sharing with us about identity and cultural identities, pursuing higher education as an older than typical college student, the mental health field, and what it was like for her to pursue her path to her clinical psychologist doctorate. You are for sure going to want to lean in and not miss hearing about how Karen epitomizes the idea of our podcast, No Wrong Turns, as she walks us through her journey of pursuing her longtime interest in psychology. No matter if this is your story and you can relate to her or not, I believe that there's something in this episode for you. All right, here is my conversation with Karen. Welcome to the No Wrong Turns podcast. Today on the show, we have Dr. Karen Harula. Hi, Karen. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story and your passion with us today. You're welcome. This is fun. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and where you are, maybe what you do, and maybe some fun facts about yourself? Yeah. So I'm Karen Harula, like you said, and I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'm currently working full-time at the Wheaton College Counseling Center. I'm, I'm the interim director of the Wheaton College Counseling Center. I've been a practicing psychologist now for eight years, and I kind of came to psychology as a second career a little bit later in life. But I have been living in the western suburbs of Chicago for more than 20 years, and active in my church, raised my kids. I have three kids. Greg is 24 and Heidi is 23 and Kelsey will be 17 tomorrow. So um, I have wow. a busy life with kids and right now everyone lives at home. So uh, we still have a lot of family time and it's interesting coordinating the lives of so many living at home young adults, but we love it. We love it. So we're happy that we have this time. And I don't know, was there more to the question you wanted me to 
to... Yeah, any fun facts or, like, maybe hobbies or stuff you like to do? I've heard several of your guests say how much they like to play board games, and I, a fun fact, do not like to play board games. Yeah, no, I'm not a board game player, which is sad, really, because a lot of my loved ones do, but... Yeah, I was thinking, Vicky, your sister has quite a collection. We do, too. Scott loves to play board games. So I make myself from time to time, but truly, I don't enjoy them. No, but what I do enjoy is golf, which a lot of people don't know that about me. My husband played a lot of golf before we were married, and when we were engaged, I said he needed to teach me how to play so I wouldn't just be a golf widow my whole life. Um (laughs) So he's been my only golf teacher, and a lot of people say your spouse shouldn't be your golf teacher, but he's been my only golf teacher, and I really, really am not good at it, but I love it, and uh, we've gotten all of our kids' clubs, so sometimes we just all go out to the driving range together or a par three course, something not too challenging, but I love golf. I love watching golf on TV. Like, I'm weird about it. Yeah, yeah, I really love. like on par with bowling or something. (laughs) Well, like, a lot of people don't like watching it on TV, but I have my favorite tournaments, and yeah, like, I just, I love golf, so fun fact. So do you really kill it on the mini golf course as well? or I haven't played mini golf in more than 20 years, so I honestly don't oh. even know. Mm-hmm. I haven't had too much opportunity to do that. And usually if I've got time for golf, I at least want to go to the driving range. So. Gotcha. Very mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself in terms of your growing up years, like maybe let's say birth to high school time? Yeah, so my parents are Salvation Army officers and from the Eastern Territory of the United States, so the northeastern part of the states. But I was born while they were serving in Puerto Rico. And my parents actually spent most of their career in Latin America. So after I was born in Puerto Rico, we spent a few years in the New York, New Jersey area where I did early elementary. And then we went back to Puerto Rico for a really short snippet of time. I did fourth grade there. And then we went to Mexico and I really consider Mexico City to be my hometown where I really grew up. I got there when I was 10 years old and stayed there till I graduated from high school. My parents were there a few years after that even. So that was really my home growing up was Mexico City. And I would visit the States during the summers. And during my high school summers, I worked at the Salvation Army Divisional Camp in Texas. Uh, So I made friends in the Southern Territory, which is not where I was from or where my parents (laughs) were from, but it was closest to Mexico. So I would go up to Texas and work at camp every summer and then go back to school in Mexico. I'm fourth of five siblings. So I come from a pretty big family. And, uh, you know, having moved to the Midwest, um, another area of the country that none of my family's from, (laughs) it kind of worked out nice. And my sister Vicky chose to kind of follow us here. So my sister Vicky lives in the Chicago area, but that's my, my only side of the family. My husband's family is all from the Midwest and they all live in Michigan now. So that's kind of a little bit about my growing up. As far as experiences that stand out, I think, you know, it's an interesting thing to feel bicultural and not look at. So what I appear on the outside, I'm a very white skinned Anglo-Saxon American looking person, very tall. And so my life in Latin America, I always stood out as a very white, very tall person. And when I came to the States, I look more like people around me. I don't stand out physically so much anymore, but who I am and kind of my cultural identity doesn't really match what I look like on the outside. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't know kind of 
my givenness towards some different cultural ideas and and values and and ways that I choose to live my life that aren't strictly very Anglo-Saxon white American. So it's hard sometimes because I feel like I have to explain myself a lot or people don't understand where I'm coming from. And so I don't always bring it up because it's just exhausting to explain myself all the time. Mm-hmm. But that's a that's a fun fact about me too that I'm not <laughs> not as white as I appear. <laughs> And so being bilingual and being bicultural are huge values in my life and very shaping experiences to my personality and kind of how I function in the world. But it's kind of blind to other people. And I have had similar discussions with people who like are of Hispanic descent, have maybe Spanish language names. And uh, they don't even speak Spanish and they've never lived in a Hispanic country. And people assume those things about them. And they're like, no, no hello, I'm, you know, like from Indiana. Um, yes. and, you know, and so they have to explain themselves kind of in reverse. So I know I'm not alone in this experience, but it is a it is a unique feature of growing up the way that I did. I have two siblings born in Argentina, one older sister and myself born in Puerto Rico. And my youngest sister, Vicky, who lives here, is the only one who was born while my parents were in the States. So we kind of have a menagerie in my house of different cultural identities amongst my siblings. And even our Spanishes are very different based on how old we were when we lived in different places. So my sister yeah. Linda's Spanish is way more Puerto Rican and Caribbean sounding. And Vicky's and mine are definitely more Mexico accents and Mexican language idioms and stuff. So, um, yeah, so we present and my parents first learned Spanish in Argentina. So their Spanish is very Argentine. So there's just a lot of mixture even amongst us, the seven of us. So, yeah. Wow. That's quite a little rainbow of the same, but different at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you went to pretty much middle school and high school in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And then when you were in high school, did you want to, were you planning on staying in Mexico and going to college there? Did you want to start working right away? What were you thinking about in terms of your next steps? Yeah, so after high school, I always thought I would go to college. I was going to a private American school in Mexico City, and it was very college prep focused. Everyone was going on to college. And I didn't have a clue what I wanted to study. And I was a very underperforming high school student. I think that was similar to someone else of your interviewees I just listened to recently. But I was a very (laughs) underperforming high school student. And I didn't know what kind of area I would want to study. And I was leaning towards going into the ministry like my parents. And so I really did think I might become a Salvation Army officer for some of my teenage years. And so that led to kind of a question of whether or not I would go to college, because that's not required for officership. So I wasn't necessarily sure that I had to go to college, but pretty much everyone around me was going to college. My older siblings, several had gone to college. So I did think I was going to go to college. But in my senior year of high school, which is kind of late in the process, I took my first AP uh, psychology class, And absolutely fell in love. And it was the first time that I had been interested in academics. It was the first time that a a course matter made sense to me. And I really did. I just was like floating on air. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to be a psychologist. And I went to my high school guidance counselor because, like I said, it was kind of late in the process. And I'm like, I think I really want to be a psychologist. Like, this is really like my brain makes sense in this class. And um, and (laughs) she said that. She didn't think that I was smart enough to be a psychologist. 
Oh, no. So I, you know, like I said, was an underperforming student. What I have learned since then is that I have ADHD and that was undiagnosed. And so part of my underperformance in school was the struggles of ADHD and attentive type, not not hypertype. Those types tend to get identified and get services. The inattentive types, not as often. And so that's what I was kind of floundering with. And so I had only applied to one college, again, because I wasn't super committed to college because I wasn't sure I needed to. But I had a friend who was on faculty at Baylor University, so I applied there. It was the only school I applied to. It was a very difficult school. And if my guidance counselor really thought I wasn't smart enough for college, she probably should have made sure I applied to some easier-to-get-into schools. But she didn't, and and so I didn't get into Baylor. And so I took that to mean that she was right, that I wasn't smart enough to go to college. So I moved to Texas where I had friends from my summers working at camp, and I got a job at a Salvation Army Social Service office as a receptionist, like, you know, unskilled 18-year-old labor. And so that's what I did. And I just figured I would figure out when, how long I wanted to do that until I went to training. I still had this piece of me that still thought I could at least get a bachelor's degree in Mm -hmm. psychology. And so I did start to take some night school classes during those years. And I thought, well, if I can accumulate just a few credits, like hopefully after I'm an officer, maybe I can like transfer into some other kind of degree completion program somewhere. So I kind of just never let the idea of getting a bachelor's of psychology go. But supporting myself and living in the States with my parents still in another country, I was I was not making a ton of money as an uneducated 18 year old working as a receptionist. So, you know, the idea of continuing education kind of on my own seemed pretty daunting. So so, were you, oh, sorry, can I ask you a question really quick? So were you then with your job as a receptionist, were you kind of just kind of maybe waiting for a couple of years to go go by before trying to go into ministry? Okay. Yeah. So I thought, you know, if I'm not smart enough to, to really be a psychologist, which is the only thing I ever cared about then if I become a Salvation Army officer, officers get to counsel people. And so I thought just in a ministry setting, I would be able to use, you know, my desire for that in that way. So yeah, I just thought I'd work a couple years. I I didn't have a real end goal in mind, but my older sister was going to training and she called me. She's like, hey, I'm going to training next year. You should come with me. And we thought that was kind of fun because both my mom and my dad went to training with their siblings and my grandmother went to training with her sibling. So it was kind of like a family thing. Tradition. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, my sister's going. That's a good reason to go. Just FYI, that's not a good reason to go. But so (laughs) that's kind of how I ended up in training when I was 20 years old, you know, just a couple years out of high school and had worked like I said, as a receptionist for two years in a social service office, that was the vast extent of my knowledge of the world. And I, you know, had supported myself and on $5 an hour, which I can promise you was challenging. Wow. $5. No, it was a while ago, (laughs) but um, yeah. So I, I, I thought, okay, I'm ready. Like if I'm just going to be a receptionist, I might as well be an officer. That's better. So I decided to go to training with my sister. So that's how kind of the timing of that happened. And that's kind of, you know, how going to college and finishing college started to become a very difficult idea. Like I'm just never going to be able to do this. People go to college when they're 18 to 22, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of running out of time for that. So I just kind of started to believe it wasn't possible 
to even get yeah. a bachelor's degree. Yeah. So I just, I didn't really focus on that so much. <clears throat> so you mentioned that when you were 20, then you went into training, mm-hmm. which is normally like a two year time frame. Right. Did you complete all two years or how did that work out for you? <laughs> yeah. So at the same time as I was getting ready to go to training, some mutual friends of ours introduced me via old school snail mail to my husband. Oh, uh, wow. My, my now husband. And so we started corresponding and I was already on my way to training. And so I was moving from Dallas to Atlanta to go to the training college and we were corresponding. So he came to Atlanta to meet me the same week that I moved into training. So I was a brand new cadet and Scott who lives in Chicago is coming down here to meet me. And so we started dating and decided pretty quickly that we were going to get married. And so, you know, the army has a lot of rules. There's, I mean, I'll just give you the short version of the story, but because he wasn't already an officer or already a cadet, which the rules were at the time, I really was not allowed to be engaged to him. So we got engaged. And as a result of that engagement, I got asked to leave training and come back after I was married. So, wow. Yeah. So I, I completed my first year with distinction, by the way, I did get an award, but <laughs> I finished my first year of training and my summer assignment, I did go on my summer assignment and it was while I was on my summer assignment, which I was doing in West Palm beach. So you can't be sad about that, but <laughs> no, was, not at all. Right. I was in Florida having a great time. My sister was also in Florida and they called me during that time to say, Hey, we think you should just, you know, not come back and get your marriage figured out and come back later. Again, this was the rules at the time. The rules now are are quite different, but that's kind of how the door shut on officership at that time for me. And I was devastated because now I'm thinking I'm not smart enough for college. They've kicked me out of training. I can't be an officer. I can't be a psychologist. I have this lovely husband who is fabulous, but career wise, I just really didn't see that God was keeping doors open, so to speak, mm-hmm. in that way. And so I just really thought maybe I wasn't going to have a career at all. So, yeah, I mean, I have no regrets about going to training and no regrets about leaving to marry my husband. But it just is not a very traditional trajectory. And, and because of systems in place at the time, you know, decisions were made for me I might not have made. So some of those turns in my life don't feel like I made all those choices. But right. <laughs> but that is just how it, how it played out. You're kind of being pushed around the corners. <laughs> yeah. So then how old were you when you got married to Scott? 22? Yeah. So by the time we got married, I was 22 and he was 25. He, he had graduated from college. And so I thought, well, he'll be the breadwinner. He has a college degree. I'm not smart, you know, so that's just not going to be how I contribute to this family. <laughs> so. So did you get married in Chicago or... No, Atlanta. We got married in Atlanta. Okay. He moved to Atlanta where I was living and uh, he got a job for the Savage Army. I got a job with the Savage Army and we just worked our little little jobs and we got married and we lived there for two years. And then just doors again started feeling like they were closing in ways that we weren't anticipating. And, you know, I didn't know anything about the Central Territory living in the Chicago area, but I knew Scott had a lot of friends here. Uh, I wasn't sure I'd be able to stomach the the cold. And so we kind of, because <laughs> um, Mexico, not so much. Puerto Rico, not so much. Like my earliest childhood memories of New York and New Jersey were very long ago. And so yeah. I really I really wasn't sure I could deal with the cold. And so we said we would move to Chicago for two years to regroup and refigure out our lives. That was the plan. We were coming to Chicago literally for two years. And I'm like, and then we're moving back to Atlanta because I can't do this. And <laughs> 
then wow. I found love with the Midwest. So <clears throat> again, God doesn't reveal things too long term. And we got to learn that firsthand. Like it was one step at a time, kind of one turn at a time. Now you're moving to Chicago. You don't need to worry about two years from now. And so by the end of two years, I couldn't even believe two years had passed and there was no way I was leaving. So, yeah. So when you moved to Chicago, what did you guys do for in terms of like living and jobs and that kind of thing? Yeah. So Scott was working in the youth department. He loved that job. He was responsible for summer mission teams that used to be out of the youth department. So his job was great. He had done summer missions as a young adult. And so he was really happy to be involved in that. And I worked in the cross-cultural and core growth department. And it was mostly kind of administrative assistant type work. I typed letters and I filed and I translated things sometimes in the cross-cultural world when they needed things in Spanish. I could help with that. But I was really just an administrative assistant at THQ. His job was at THQ. And we both worked. And then we started having children. And Greg was born and I took three months and then went back to work. And not too long thereafter, we discovered <laughs> we were expecting Heidi. And the reality is, you know, to have two infants, diapered infants in childcare is pretty expensive. And mm-hmm. as an uneducated, again, kind of lower level employee, I wasn't making enough money to put two kids in childcare. So that's yeah. when I decided to stay home. After Heidi was born, I didn't go back to work. Scott continued working. And he had a couple other career turns that took him away from the Army and back to the Army and away and back. But I stayed home after Heidi was born and just started my stay-at-home mom years, which I also have no regrets about. That was wonderful. And I'm really grateful I didn't have, like, this wonderful career I had to choose between parenting my littles and, you know, a wonderful career. I was either typing somebody else's mail or taking care of my kids. So I kind of easily made that decision (laughs) that I would stay home with my kids. So I did that and I started my own business. I had a Tupperware business. I was really successful at Tupperware. Like kind of in your house, invite people over to to see stuff and buy stuff, that kind of yeah. thing? Yeah, so I did Tupperware parties at my house, at other people's houses. I had a huge team of sales force that I recruited. Wow. I drove free cars for a couple years through Tupperware, all the way up to the free minivan. So I was I was pretty successful with Tupperware, and it was a nice balance for me to get out of the house in the evenings when Scott was home from work. And it gave me something to do, ability to make a little bit of money and interact with adults. So it was a good balancing thing, (laughs) you know, after being home all day with kids. It was really nice. And I was naturally a good communicator. So Mm -hmm. sales came easy for me. Not that I ever see myself as a salesperson, but verbal communication is a strength. So I I could sell easily and I could recruit fairly easily. So... I really enjoyed it for what it was and and for how long it lasted in my life. I probably did that for five or six years. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's quite a big chunk of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Until I had Kelsey. So then when you had Kelsey, how long did you continue to stay at home after you had her? Because then Greg and Heidi would be, would have been like in elementary school, right? Yeah, so Greg and Heidi were in elementary school, and I had Kelsey, and I had this moment. I was studying. I was doing a Bible study with some friends of mine over that summer after she was born in March, and I just had this moment where I thought, you know, if I don't go to college soon, I'm really running out of time to really kind of make the end game possible because I'm 34 years old at this point, 
And so I really just had to decide, you know, what I was willing to pursue. And so with, with Greg and Heidi at school and just a baby at home, I decided to start my college career. So I went to my local community (laughs) college. I went to COD night school with other adult learners and it was one night a week of school. And I, I could do my homework while Kelsey was napping and then Greg and Heidi were home in the afternoon. So if initially it was a very easy routine, quite honestly, I did not know that I would do well. And I remember, you know, kind of the night before I started my first night class, I just sat up in bed and I'm like, Scott, what if I can't do this? What if she was right? What if I'm not smart enough? I haven't been in school in a long time. You know, I really struggled to believe in myself and it it just was a really difficult step of faith for me to start that process. But I, so I was still home, so to speak. I wasn't working mm-hmm. and I was Kelsey's primary caregiver for, again, the next couple few years of her life. So how old was Kelsey when you started? So Kelsey was six months old when I started at COD mm-hmm. at College of DuPage. And so I was blessed with health in my own family, health in my parents and extended family, no kind of disruptions in my education, which mm-hmm. op- often happens with adult learners. And I want to acknowledge that God was just really, really good in allowing me to have an uninterrupted college experience as a, as an older adult. Mm-hmm. So I, I did two years of night school at COD. I transferred to another local college, Elmhurst College, for my undergrad. They also had an adult degree completion. So I mostly did night school there until my senior year, the last of my prereqs. And then I had to enter the traditional student population. So I'm taking (laughs) childhood development classes with 18 year olds. And here I am a mom of three. And there's these 18 and 19 year olds in there. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be an interesting class because I clearly have different life experiences to bring to this discussion. So there was a few times, just a little bit, just a little bit. So there was a few times it was a little bit awkward. But honestly, most of the students didn't really care or notice they didn't. It it was not impactful that I was in their class. (laughs) So, it, you know, it was fine. It just was awkward for me because the first three years were entirely with adults in night school. Yeah. So I kind of fit the profile. And then my senior year, I'm judging through undergrad prereqs and stuff. So it was <laughs> it just was interesting. But I finished in four years. I got it all done in four years. And so I was able to just apply directly to graduate schools. The funny thing is when Kelsey was a baby and I was starting my education, I thought, OK, if I start now, I can get a master's degree and start working as a counselor or a therapist with a master's degree in six years. And that's going to be when she goes to first grade. So my initial plan was I've got six years to get this done so I can start working when she goes to school. And so it wasn't until I was into the process and into my education that the idea of actually being a psychologist kind of reared its little head again. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm old. Old people don't get their doctorate. This is weird. And that's a lot of time and money. And so God had a lot of work to do to convince me that not only that I was capable, but that he had a plan and I should just get on that plan. So I initially started the whole process thinking I would end with my master's. So when I first started looking at graduate schools, I'm knocking on the doors and having these interviews with people. And when I went to Wheaton, they had both a master's and a doctoral program. So I made the appointment with the admissions office Mm -hmm. just to talk about the master's program. So I get into the office and the woman, she launches into all this information about the master's program. And I'm like, actually, 
I think I want you to tell me a little bit about the doctoral program. Like I got like whispering it. I'm like, I don't want to say it out loud. You know, like I'm so not sure I'm capable of this. And I still had so much doubt in my own capability, but uh, God was faithful and he was kind and, uh, and he sent people along the way to, to help, you know, build my confidence and belief in, in myself and in his plan. So, yeah, so uh, that's essentially what I did when I finished undergrad. I went right in, right into my doctoral work. And so I went to Wheaton College for my graduate school and I wanted to work in the church and I wanted to be a voice for mental health in the church. And I know a lot of people in the church are still very suspicious of psychology, don't believe Mm -hmm. psychology, think psychology is the devil or just that it's anti-Christian. Not Mm -hmm. even that it's the devil, but it's that it's anti-Christian. And so in order to earn, I thought, a little street cred with folks in the church, I decided while I was at Wheaton that I would get a master's degree in theology. So I kind of just casual add that on. So I did them concurrently. I did my doctoral work and my master's degree at the same time. So they kind of overlapped. So it was a very intense five years. But Mm -hmm. in the in the five years of graduate school, I completed two masters and a doctorate. So ta-da, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so after you completed those five years at Wheaton, what was your next step? Because do you get the doctorate and you're done? You can start the counseling or I don't know. <laughs> yeah. do you need to sit for a licensing yeah. exam and then get certain hours. What, what did that look like for you? Yeah, so the fifth year of education for a doctor of psychology includes an internship or residency. And so it's a whole match process, just like medical students go through a match for their residencies. So my match process for year five sent us to San Antonio and we had decided as a family they would all come with me, which was huge and a huge adjustment and a huge cost for my family to leave their life in Chicago and come with me to San Antonio. Hey listeners, this week in our sponsor spot, I just wanted to take a moment and talk about Jacob Blake. This morning I woke up to the news that another black man, Jacob Blake, was shot by the police right in front of his own children. And this took place in a town called Kenosha, which is only about an hour or so from where I live. As I've been learning about what happened, there's a quote that basically has sums up my thoughts today. This was from, this was written by Robert Jones Jr. And it was, I found it because it was posted to his Instagram, uh, which is at the son of Baldwin. And he writes, if you can shoot an unarmed black person in broad daylight during a pandemic with the cameras rolling in a time of protest, when the whole world is specifically watching you to see if it's true, what black people have been saying about your murderous rampage. That means you will stop at nothing to murder black people, justifying any and every response from the rebellion. Let's just take a moment to let that sink in. So this then led me to a space of what can I do right now to be an ally in pursuing justice for Jacob Blake. What could I do today was to send several emails writing to the Kenosha District Attorney, the Kenosha Kenosha Mayor, and the Kenosha Police Department, Chief 
Chief of Police to demand justice and transparency. I will be posting to our No Wrong Turns pod, Instagram and Facebook, the email addresses and phone numbers of those who you can contact to demand justice for Jacob Blake. All right, back to Karen's story. So my fifth year was in San Antonio. We came back up here to graduate from Wheaton in May of that year. And then I had not found a job in St. Louis, but I had found a postdoctoral fellowship, which is the next stage. You, You need to have more supervision and more training even after you have the degree. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did a postdoctoral fellowship in psychology and religion in St. Louis. And so we moved the whole family to St. Louis and I was able to complete a full year fellowship. And that's still not enough hours to sit for the licensing exam. Can you explain what what you mean by fellowship? What is that? Yeah. Um, can you define it for me? Yeah. So it's a fancy way of saying you're an employee, you work for pay, but you're still not paid well. That's essentially what that means, because there's still a training component to it. You're still considered a trainee. There's a lot of didactics and, and, and teaching and supervision and kind of group case conceptualization as we work on our cases. And so because of that, you're not a fully licensed, practicing independently, able to charge for your services type of thing. So it is a very humbling experience where you're working <laughs> like a psychologist and you're being paid like a receptionist. So <laughs> that uh, that is just part of that is just part of the deal of the of the whole kind of trajectory. And then after the year in St. Louis, I really felt God calling us back to Chicago. And even though they did offer me a job in St. Louis, I didn't feel like that's where God was asking me to stay. And I was invited to join a practice up here in the western suburbs of Chicago. And so that's where I came back and started preparing for my licensure exam, which I then took about six months after we moved back. So I became licensed within a year of finishing my postdoc. But yeah, so beginning to end, it's about seven years, actually, from starting graduate school to licensure. So it's a, it's a long process. And I think as much as they told us to prepare for a long process, we didn't believe it would be as long, as, as arduous as it was. But yeah, and, and I think that the bottom line for me is that I was always convinced God called me to be a psychologist. And that was enough. That was enough. The, I mean, the, it was hard. I'm not going to say it was easy. It was still hard. But the conviction that this was exactly the steps that God was ordering for me just really made my commitment to that process a lot easier. I was just thinking about one thing, and you mentioned it several times during your journey from high school till finishing your doctorate degree, when you were just kind of referencing what that one high school guidance counselor told you over and over again. I don't know what my exactly what my question is, but I don't know. I just think it's so crazy how one person's words, because I have that in my own life of just mm-hmm. hearing one person's opinion or whatever and it just kind of takes over like, your your mindset so I don't really have a yeah. I don't know what kind no, of question it is an interesting thing because I've said this to people before if I have any regret at all about the whole process is that I believed her for as long mm-hmm. as I did you know that I did not push through that or challenge that you know my parents are not college educated they're Salvation Army officers but they didn't go to college so I also didn't have a ton of reference within my family, like, you know, that we were, 
capable of college work and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it just felt like I was fitting into kind of my family norm to not go to college. And so all of that was kind of part of how I justified or explained to myself how I was not going to go to college or how I wasn't, you know, built for that. And, and I say that to people now to, to say, like, to give an example of just how important our words are, you know, that our words really carry weight, that people do remember what we say years down the road. And especially when we're working with or mentoring students or trainees now, like I try to be very, very aware of, of just how I, I give feedback you know, and, and how I build up a student as, as they're going through their training process. But I think it's always uh, wise to stay away from giving people definitions of themselves, (laughs) which is, which is essentially what she did. And unfortunately it took me time to overcome that. But at the end of the day, you know, Eric Himes' song, let nothing be wasted. Like I, (laughs) I literally, don't think that any of my life experiences in these different turns that my life took were at all wasted. I think I'm a better psychologist for having overcome some of those things. I think I'm a better psychologist for having entered my education with more life experience behind me. I really appreciated my education. I knew very clearly what I was sacrificing to get it. So I just have a totally different experience of college than my kids do or uh, anybody who goes during those, you know, traditional ages of 18 to 22. And mind you, I very much push my kids to do that. Like, please get your college education over with. Do not put it off and Mm -hmm. drag your kids through your college education. Like I dragged you through mine, you know, get it, get it over with. But I do feel like I'm I'm better for it and God had that for my timeline and it just isn't a traditional one and it had to come with people closing doors or people saying terrible things to me but <laughs> um, he used those things to direct my path and the timeline of my life and so I I don't I don't people ask me if I've ever gone back to try to find that guidance counselor and I'm like why on earth why why like it's completely meaningless you know now and I'm so old. I'm sure she's retired if she's even still. I hope she's so, retired. <laughs> I, know, I know. So I'm like, you know, it's not, I don't have any, I don't have anything to prove. I don't have any reason to do that. So. Yeah. That's interesting. I can't, that, that people would think you would want to go track her down. <laughs> no. No, thanks. So after you graduated, you were here in Chicago. And then what was your next step? After you graduated, you were licensed, you had all your hours. Mm-hmm. Then do you start applying for jobs or do you kind of have that like in the works as you are working up to getting all of those things in order? Yeah. So uh, like I said, after my um, postdoc, I was invited to join a practice here in the Western suburbs. I was very happy there. There was Mm -hmm. lovely, lovely Christian psychologist practice. I enjoyed joining them and learning from them. But what people don't understand about healthcare and the mental health field in particular. So there are very few locations that actually pay you a salary to do the work that you do. Almost everywhere you work, you will be paid in some form fee for service, meaning that if you see a client, you'll get paid. If you don't see a client, you're not going to get paid. And so at that first practice that I joined, yeah, I was an independent contractor, which means I wasn't even an employee. So there was no benefits, no paid time off, no holiday pay, none of that. 
If I saw a client, I got paid. If I didn't see a client, I didn't get paid. So it was very hard for me to earn enough money to pay my bills that way. And my student loans, I had to start paying my student loans at that point. And I stayed there, I want to say almost two years, maybe a little bit more than two years, really, really hoping that I would build up a caseload large enough that I could Mm -hmm. make that work as an independent contractor. But I couldn't. And I sad, uh, but had to leave that practice. I went to another practice, had a, a somewhat different pay structure. And so it felt like something that I could try. And it, it did improve some. My income stability improved there, but I still only got paid if I saw people. So it just was, I was an employee. So I did have some paid benefits and some paid time off, but otherwise it was very similar. So had the same struggle there. And I just was getting frustrated with the notion that I've worked so hard, worked so hard to be a therapist. And I couldn't understand why either God wasn't blessing me with enough clients. I didn't know how to market myself to get enough clients. Like I I didn't know how to overcome that struggle, that piece of it. And I love being a therapist. So it wasn't that I didn't enjoy the work. I didn't enjoy the lack of work and and I didn't (laughs) know how to overcome that. So, so I, heard about a place that was hiring in the city where some friends of mine worked and I had been familiar with that clinic from my research days as a student. And so I ended up applying for a job as a behavioral health consultant at the Lawndale Christian Health Center in the city of Chicago, which is an amazing, amazing ministry and an amazing Mm -hmm. place. And just, it's like an oasis in the desert and it's, it's just beautiful and it's full of Christian doctors and physicians assistants and psychologists and and people who just really love that community very, very well. And so I worked there for almost three years. And so my work there was very different. I wasn't a traditional therapist. We worked as behavioral health consultants on the medical teams. And so we helped doctors work with their patients with mental health disorders. We did some one-on-one therapy work, but it was in a much different type of model. Mm -hmm. So not an hour of therapy. But I really found that I enjoyed it and I was good at it and I could use my Spanish there every day and I got to (laughs) see Hispanic clients more than pretty much anybody else. And so that fulfilled all sorts of different levels of who I am and, you know, kind of God used that job to show me just how diverse my skills really are and how teachable I am, and how I can learn new things, and take on the challenge of a medical clinic in a very under-resourced environment, and and work with clients who just have stressors you can't imagine, and so I just, I just value that time so much, and it was a surprise to me when God started to close the door on Lawndale, because I just was like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this one's working, this is, this is really working, and I'm good here, and So this door closing was a very big shock to me, but I developed some physical limitations. I slipped some discs in my spine and it made driving into the city literally too painful for me. Like I I just could not stand to sit in the car that long. Wow. And I would get to work and already be in so much pain. I I couldn't fathom how I was still going to have to work eight hours and then turn around, get in the car and drive home. And it's funny that the car is like the least comfortable position for me it's really really a struggle I can pretty much make any position work for me except sitting in a car so it is what it is but it was becoming increasingly difficult for me to stay at Lawndale so I started looking and I actually was looking for a year before this job at Wheaton College became available 
And I had actually only approached my friend there because I knew he hired people sometimes part-time. And I thought, well, maybe if I could work a couple days at Wheaton College, that's closer to home. And then maybe one or two days I'll drive to Lawndale and just try to balance it a little bit that way. Mm-hmm. And he essentially was like, no, I've already hired all my part-time staff for next year. And a couple weeks later, he called me back and he's like, actually, Karen, I want you to apply for my job. I'm being promoted and I need to Whoa. replace So that's how this job happened. It was not actually what I went looking for, but I took it as God's opening of a door. And so I have been the interim director of the counseling center since August. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy how just different opportunities, who you know at that right time of what you're looking for and what they need. And like you just speak to the right person, how God makes that happen. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. And and the person who was the director prior to myself had been on staff when I had trained there many, many years ago. So he and I had been colleagues when I was a trainee and we had just stayed in touch. He had left for a time to get his doctorate as well. And so it just was a full circle kind of opportunity that God used a connection that was made 10 years ago, literally 10, 11 years ago you know, for such a time as this. So that's where I'm at. That's where God's placed me. Can you tell us your official title? Yeah, so I'm I'm officially called the interim director of the counseling center because I was a quick hire. They didn't have time to do their normal kind of full hiring search, mm-hmm. which is a deal in academia. There's always big searches for these positions and academic institutions. And there wasn't time for that because this promotion and this shift was happening in the middle of the summer. And so my friend knew he needed to hire somebody right away. He knew that I was capable of the job or he believed I was capable of the job. So, and he knew I was looking because I had reached out to him. So I have the title of interim until they post the position, which might be happening in the next couple of weeks. And then I will have to apply for it and it'll be open for anybody in the country to apply for it. And then we'll see what God does. And I knew when I took this job, it may only be a year. I may not be who Wheaton wants to keep on there. We'll see. But I've loved my year there. And I just, I have to, I have to trust that if this is not what God has, he'll have something else. But in the meantime, I'm very, very happy. I have a wonderful staff. I'm really enjoying kind of this different use of my skills in managing a staff and serving a staff. And I will see, we'll just see. In this position, can you kind of tell us, cause you kind of told us like a little bit before what you did, like seeing clients one-on-one or helping doctors, like in a typical day to day or maybe in a week, cause probably every day isn't the same. What are some of your typical duties? So as the the counseling center director, I attend a lot of committees on campus. I'm really kind of the presence of mental health in a lot of arenas for Wheaton College. So there's a lot of committees I sit on to kind of speak to the mental health issues that might come up for different areas. So I have a variety of, of committees. And then I also am a part of what Wheaton calls the student wellness team. And mm-hmm. so the student wellness team is myself, the director of the student health office, our student care office and our learning and accessibility specialists who help with academic accommodations, like anything having to do with student wellness. And so we meet together and discuss our plans. We often collaborate on different efforts on campus, uh, promoting Mm -hmm. student wellness. So we'll plan different events together, coordinate our resources together. So that's kind of the, that's kind of my work team of peers. Uh Um, And I really, really love being on that team. And then the person who hired me is now our dean. 
And mm-hmm. so he's kind of kind of in charge of everything that goes on with student wellness related. So that's a lot of my work. I have staff meetings and other coordinating just within the counseling center itself with my own staff. So that's several hours a week of meetings and case conceptualization and and stuff supervision with students. I tend to see about two students a day. I do do some clinical work. So on average, I'll have two student appointments a day and the rest of my day is in administrative meetings or Mm -hmm. planning and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I get to do a lot of different things, which I love and still have a hand in clinical work and still get to use my skills in that area, which I had missed being a traditional therapist. And so this has given me an opportunity to lead people and and serve my staff, but also be a clinician again, and in a more traditional sense as a psychologist, as you think about. And so, yeah, I have a lot of coordinating work to do when students become ill or need to leave campus. There's Mm -hmm. administrative tasks that come up with stuff like that. But yeah, I, I feel like I'm mostly centered on education and continuing to forward the message of mental health and good self-care and student wellness in kind of educative and proactive ways, but then obviously providing the clinical services to respond either to crises or just your garden variety need for counseling. And so um, garden variety. you get to see a lot of different things and, and yeah, I'm just really appreciative of the diversity because it's, it keeps me on my toes. I really enjoy it. Yeah, I imagine it would. Mm-hmm. So right now, I just want to pivot for a moment. And I want to ask you, as a psychologist, what are some of the myths that you have heard about your profession and your passion that you hear oftentimes, and you just think to yourself, wow, this, this totally isn't true, if they only knew mm-hmm. that it was really like this, or some people may think X, Y, and Z is super hard, but you're like, no, it's truly, it's truly fine. So what are some myths that you can debunk for us today? Well, there's the common myth when I tell people that I'm a psychologist, people assume that psychologists are analyzing people all the time and that people can never be just themselves around you because you're like going to be deciding things or diagnosing them. And I can promise you, I don't want to do my work outside of the office. So I'm really not doing that. And <laughs> So I think that's a common myth. People are like somehow afraid to speak up or be honest around psychologists because they're afraid of what they are going to think that means. And that's a little bit silly. (laughs) But some of the myths that I am more upset by and kind of really want to spend some of my professional energy debunking are myths around mental health in people of faith. And, you know, there are myths that we have believed in the church for a really long time that anxiety is is a lack of faith that if you are right with God, you know, you won't experience depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, or the other explanations for psychosis that have often been attributed to spiritual things, spiritual warfare, demonic activity. I've seen articles recently in magazines put out by my denomination that talk about having anxiety being an invitation for demonic activity in your life. So I know these kinds of myths still are out there. We still talk about them in these spiritualizing kind of ways that are inaccurate to what's happening. And they're so unhelpful to people of faith who are suffering, who then feel either shame, like it means I'm a bad Christian if I admit that I'm anxious or depressed, Or another myth is that if I can 
you know, like if I'm not in therapy, that that's evidence that I don't need to be in therapy. So if I can just keep on keeping on and never go to therapy, it must mean I'm fine. That's not what that means. Sounds like a lot of repressed feelings (laughs) that are going to explode. That's exactly what's going to happen. And so I think a lot of people avoid going to therapy because they are afraid of what it means. It must mean I'm falling apart or it means I'm crazy. There are just so many myths and so many stigmas in my field. And I think the world in general is starting to get a little bit better. And I think the church is maybe a half step behind the world in this area. And I think I I welcome any and all opportunities to speak to church groups on this issue. I do quite a bit of teaching and, and speaking, and, and that's my other professional passion. And I'm I'm lucky that so far I've I've been able to keep up my kind of sporadic speaking schedule with my full-time job. But I really, really welcome opportunities to speak into some of these myths that we hold in the church that keep people who are suffering, suffering longer, keep them away from the professional help that they need. You know, I there's a lot of myths and fears around medication, and each case is different. So I will not give professional advice in this context of what you should do. But I usually invite people to just start that conversation with their medical providers. Like, just talk to your doctor about your symptoms. See what suggestions he might have for you. Doesn't mean you have to take his advice. Doesn't mean if he, you know, offers you a medication, you have to take it. But it's a good conversation to start with your medical provider. Just see you know, based on their professional opinion, whether or not they would refer you to a therapist, whether or not they would offer you a medication option. We just need to be better informed and not be so afraid of information. And we need to employ information well and not call things something they're not. Because I do think that in the church, we uh, we ultimately punish those of us among us who are suffering and hurting and, and, and we keep those things stigmatized and scary. And if we just talked about them more openly, I think anything we expose to the light has the opportunity to heal. And and by exposing things to the light, I'm not suggesting people should take out both, you know, like big posters and announce to the world mm-hmm. whatever their symptoms are. But I, I do think talking to a therapist and getting the right support is such an important first step in healing for most folks. And it's sorely lacking. And because there's shame around it in the church and it it is taken to mean that there's some weakness in your faith, a lot of folks in the church don't talk about it mm-hmm. for fear of what will be said about them or how that will be interpreted. And so it keeps them in pain and in silence and in hiding. And so a lot of those myths just are so, so hurtful. But at the okay. same time, I'm not I'm not analyzing you when I meet <laughs> you. So <laughs> Awesome. Thank you for debunking some of those for us. Mm -hmm. My next question is kind of for someone who's listening, who is thinking maybe, oh, I really liked my psychology class as well. That really made me come alive. And they kind of have a similar maybe budding interest that you had. What would you advise them for their next step to be to kind of investigate that further? What would you what advice would you give to someone? You know, ours is a field where it's really hard to do a lot of shadowing or kind of seeing what a therapist does because due to confidentiality and the nature of our work, you can't just kind of sit in on what a psychologist does. So there are some challenges to that, but I say if you're still in school, talk to your psych professors, you know, ask some first questions. 
you know, kind of continue to pursue your interest in that, even if it's just changing a course next fall, you know, and taking mm-hmm. one more psychology class and just exploring things a little bit deeper. If you're still in school, let's say you're already out of school, you've got a bachelor's in psychology, but now you're not sure what to do. I would say start looking at schools in your area. There's a variety of ways you can go. You can go into marriage and family therapy. You can go into mental health therapy. You can, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go. And there are some places you can get a job with a with a bachelor's in psychology that will expose you to the work of, of a psychologist, like to be um, like a mental health tech in a psychiatric ward at a hospital or in an ER. You get to do some preliminary interviewing with patients. You get to see kind of what the services that are offered there. And so if you're looking for a job that might expose you to some of that work, being a mental health tech in a hospital is one way to do it. Because at a bachelor's level, you can still get some kind of understanding of what the therapists and psychologists there do. So that's a job you could potentially pursue. But it is hard. I mean, it was my husband's only reservation when I talked to him about the difference between getting a master's and getting a doctorate. You know, when I came home from that meeting where I kind of whispered. Uh, <laughs> so then I had to come home and say to my husband, oh, I think I want to talk about the doctorate. And he's like, yeah, I'm totally in support of that. Like he, he was always supportive from day one. He goes, I wish there was some way you could know like that you're really going to love it before you kind of commit to the doctoral process. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I do too, but I'm kind of old. And my concern was if I went to a terminal master's program first, I would either not ever want to go back to school or I would feel like I was too old and I, and I would kind of get off track. And so I just that thought, oh, I think if I just commit to the doctorate from the get go. I know that's the plan I'm on. I'll just stick with it. So, mm-hmm. and I did. Awesome. So do you have any, kind of along those same lines, do you have any maybe resources that helped you along the way that you could recommend? Mm-hmm. Whether it be books or podcasts or yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I recommend this book to pretty much everyone I ever speak to in any context. And it is the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It is written by a pastor and his wife, Pete Scazzaro is his name. It's an Italian name. So it's S-C-A-Z-E-R-R-O or Z-Z-E-R-O, Scazzaro. You can find it on Amazon. It's really easy. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The reason why I uh, recommend it so much is because it's the first book I've read in a Christian context that talks about the nitty gritty of difficult things in psychology and how we have to face some of those things that may have been in our childhoods or our family of origin that really need to be reexamined and healed as adults. And without doing that work, we will be emotionally crippled and that affects our spiritual life. And I think a lot of Christians are motivated to improve their spiritual life and they think they do that by ignoring their emotional life. And this book, the premise of this book is that you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so Mm -hmm. he ties them together in ways that are biblically accurate and really faithful. And so I just love that book. I tell everybody you should read Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Awesome. Thank you for the recommendation. All right. I have one final question for you. And this is a question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And that is what is fueling you today? What's fueling your passion? So this could be anything from a new coffee order to maybe a new TV show, a new place that you found in town that you like to go to. What is fueling you today? Mm. 
So my daughter Heidi is engaged to be married. And we are just loving this whole wedding preparation process. We are now at the at the year off point. We have a year to go. And so I am just that's like my that's like personally fueling me. I (laughs) I absolutely just love to come home and talk about flower choices and, you know, beverage choices. And what are we going to serve at this meal? And what are we going to do for this? And I said to her the other day, I'm like, if I get overwhelming, just just tell me, you know, because I don't want to be that mom. But (laughs) so that's just that's just making life fun outside of work. I think what's fueling my passion professionally and for the things that I care about is is in fact, like in the month of February, I had six speaking engagements, which is rare. I don't usually speak six times in a month, but two of them were for work. So they were on campus with students and two of them, uh, four of them were at Salvation Army events. And I just really, really feel like God is continuing to to make those opportunities available for me to speak. And so far is mostly to my own denomination, but I'm okay with that. And you know, I just I'm so appreciative that he's reminded me that that's still a role he has for me because I'm not employed full time for the church, but I still get these opportunities and this door keeps being opened for me. So whether I continue to do that, uh, you know, in balance with my full time job or not, I don't know. And again, I just I trust God at this point. He has twisted and turned my career so many ways I wouldn't have anticipated you know, I'm pretty comfortable with that now. And so, yeah, I just, I feel like the speaking engagements in the month of February were just super sweet that he would send me that in the middle of winter when otherwise <laughs> life can get really dreary and blah. So yeah, I've got some fun things going on in my personal life that fuel me a lot. And then, you know, these different opportunities professionally that fuel me professionally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and more about your passion. You're welcome. This has been fun. Awesome. Friends, I have loved our conversation with Karen. It was incredible to hear Karen share her story about learning about the topic of psychology and knowing that she was interested in pursuing this passion of hers. Karen's story took many interesting twists and turns through her deciding how and if and when she would pursue higher education and going to college. Ultimately, she decided to pursue higher education, and through that time, she was able to decide that she needed to keep pursuing higher education through getting her bachelor's in psychology, then master's in theological studies, and ultimately her doctorate in clinical psychology. There were several lessons and takeaways that could come from this conversation. One thing that I took away was Karen's unfiltered and more sober view of her major and the cost. Not only the monetary cost, but the cost of time and time away from her family in pursuing this degree. Through being an older adult who was pursuing higher education, she was able to better understand not only what she wanted to study, but also what she needed to sacrifice in order to do so. Another takeaway that she had mentioned was the idea of to let nothing be wasted. What she mentioned was a song that Eric Himes, who's going to be a future guest on the podcast, wrote. This is the idea that through her path to her career and her education timing, even though it's not the most typical thing, she was able to not let that be wasted. 
Like I mentioned moments ago, she did not need to waffle between college majors and being unsure or undecided because she already knew what she was interested in pursuing. Karen's life experiences leading up and stage of life as she was pursuing her doctorate helped to further enrich her why and her studies. I hope that we were all encouraged today through Karen's story and her passions. My prayer is that you would consider what God has for you and what he might be leading you to. Our episode was edited by Sophia Bote, and you can see the show notes for our music credits. All right, guys, enjoy your week and your last couple days of August. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And I will see you back here for our episode with my old college roommate and finance guru, Bethany Bayless. Hey friends, you have just listened to the No Wrong Turns podcast with Audrey the Hickman Hunter. I'm Audrey and I am your host and I am so glad and happy that you are here. If you like what you're listening to today, please make sure and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are bringing you new shows every other Tuesday and always have awesome guests come on and chat about their story and their passions. Subscribe to the No Wrong Turns pod with Audrey Hickman Hunter on your podcast subscriber player app so that you guys will never miss an episode.